history isn't cut and dry. There, there was not some, you know, tome of facts that was has been handed down in generations and generations, and, and we all read off the same book. If history is cut and dry, someone's got to cut it. Someone's got to dry it, right? Black studies are really efforts to capture the ways that the history experiences culture, lives of Black people, African Americans, what our lives are about, what constitutes them historically, culturally, politically over time. And you can kind of walk through the history of Black America in this way that that Black people were emancipated because it was in the interests of the country to preserve the Union. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. The partisan attack on history did not start with Ron DeSantis, but his obvious presidential aspirations make it clear that we are going to be arguing over the history of these United States and how it is told at least through the end of the Republican presidential primary. So just settle in. And here's the thing. The cost to us all for this whole political moment, it will not only be the forms of censorship and erasure that continue to emerge in schools around the country right now. There's also this other thing that's something like an opportunity cost. All these debates over stuff on which there's already consensus among reputable historians, they take up space in the public conversation, space in which we should be wrestling with new ideas, new questions about the dominant narrative and what it leaves out, our whitewashes. And so, since it is the final week of Black History Month, I want to revisit a conversation I had in February of 2021 with a scholar who is very much asking these kinds of new and radical questions about our history. I'm Saidia Hartman, and I'm a writer and a cultural historian. Saidia has been a MacArthur Genius Fellow and is a professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. Her most recent book has one of the most fantastic titles in print. It's called Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Riotous Black Girls, Troublesome Women, and Queer Radicals. And we're going to spend the whole show in the conversation I had with her. And her work is so fascinating and unconventional that when we met, I had to start by just trying to understand how she even thinks about it as an academic discipline. I've seen some debate about uh, where your work fits in the world. How do you think of your work? That's a really complex question because, I mean, I think that I'm really involved in something that's more like a historical poetics. And I think historians like to say, you know, the ones who actually respect the work is like, oh, yes, we respect that work. Um, She really shouldn't do the thing she does. But she gets away with it, and graduate students don't do what she does. <laughs> and so I'm kind of, um, you know, I'm an outlier who is fortunate enough to be engaged by historians. But you're right, I don't actually fit into the category. And for yourself, you don't think you fit in that category. That's not what you're aspiring to. You're aspiring to something different. 
I mean, I think that's changed over time. I think that in Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, something shifted and I mm. crossed a boundary and I don't think there's any going back. <laughs> so, you know, I joke that my method is as wayward as those I write about. So, yeah, so I think that cultural historian maybe now fits less well than it did in the past. So settle in, make yourself some tea or something. We're not taking calls. We're just going to let Saidia tell us a few stories of the wayward lives and beautiful experiments that she's discovered. She's focused on the turn of the 20th century in this book, and she's digging around in the archives, finding snippets and flashes of life, and then trying to either more fully document those lives or sometimes just imagine their worlds. For us, I asked her to begin by reading a section from one of her early chapters in which she describes this time and the people in it who have captured her mind. It was an age when Negroes were the most beautiful people, and this was no less true of her. Even her detractors reluctantly admitted as much. It is hard to explain what's beautiful about a rather ordinary colored girl of no exceptional talents, a face difficult to discern in the crowd, an average Corine not destined to be a star or even the heroine of a feminist plot. In some regard, it is to recognize the obvious, but that which is reluctantly seated, the beauty of the black ordinary, the beauty that resides in and animates the determination to live free, the beauty that propels the experiments in living otherwise. It encompasses the extraordinary and the mundane, art and everyday use. Beauty is not a luxury. Rather, it is a way of creating possibility in the space of enclosure a radical art of subsistence, an embrace of our terribleness, a transfiguration of the given. It is a will to adorn, a proclivity for the Baroque, and the love of too much. Hmm. The love of too much. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost you're describing a composite of the human that you are searching for in the archives in this book. Is that the case? And if so, what is the origin of that? Why are you seeking out that person? Um, I think that you're right. I mean, as I began to do the research for this book, I had this encounter with a photograph by Thomas Eakins. And in the photograph, it was um, a nude photograph of a young black girl maybe 9, 10, 11 years old. And I thought, who is she? How did she wind up in the studio? Under what conditions did she find herself naked and being photographed by Aikens and his team? And that figure initiated the quest. And mm -hmm. so in some sense, the book is about the impossible search for this figure 
and it traces her through the lives of a number of young women and young genderqueer folk. And it is a serial portrait. So all of those who I write about are this young girl, and none of them are. And you said an impossible search, because the point is that these these are people who, who appear in the archive, but only in flashes. Yes, and often that is how Black girls and women appear in historical archives, whether in the archive of slavery, stripped of names and any identity. And here, she's denied mm-hmm. even a first name. And that seems really exemplary of the problem of history and its proper subjects, right? So we think about these representative figures, these exceptional figures, these notable figures. So how does one write an account of a nameless figure? And Mm. rather than that being a deterrent to finding out about her life, for me, it's the incitement. Um, Like, what was her journey through the streets of the city? Where might she have lived? Who were all the other girls who were like her, who crossed paths with her? And I think that, you know, a central question is, you know, who's fit to be a historical subject, right? Mm. Um, Who's imagined as being capable of transforming history, transforming social relations, certainly not poor Black girls. That passage begins, it was an age when Negroes were the most beautiful people. What is this age and why do you describe it that way? If we think of, you know, just early 20th century American literature, if we think, you know, by the time that there's the advent of the the jazz age, there's something about Black modernity or young Black men and women in the city cutting too fine a figure, too much in love with beauty, which is considered dangerous and wasteful and transgressive, but yet no one can deny it. Even the, you know, the white reformers who would eradicate the behavior acknowledge my God, they look really good, right? Um, and and there's a kind of suspicion that's connected with, you know, the inexpensive but beautiful clothes, the too many ribbons, the flash and the style, or the leader and intellectual Alexander Crummel, who actually delivered sermons about the dangers of aesthetical Negroes. And I love that. Friend said it sounds like the name of a aesthetical band. Negroes. Aesthetical Negroes. <laughs> And again, that aesthetical, it's not, you know, it's not aesthetic, it's aesthetical. And the aesthetical is precisely about the too much. May we all be aesthetical Negroes. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and Zora Neale Hurston, um, in her essay, The Characteristics of Negro Expression, I mean, she provides a formal language for this too much, right? Uh, she talks about all of these things that are considered excessive, baroque, but those are, you know, so wonderful. And I guess as I watched these aesthetical Negroes move through the city and create lives, I just thought, yes. And I just wanted to be in that moment of possibility with them. (laughs) 
You're listening to a conversation I had in 2021 with author and cultural historian Saidia Hartman. The kind of questions that Saidia is asking about history, they are facing uniquely intense partisan attack right now. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the coming months processing and reacting to this debate over history. And we'd love your guidance. Is there an idea or an event in U.S. history that you just don't understand? Or maybe that you think, you know what, the way I was taught this thing, it just doesn't sound right. Tell us about it, and maybe you will inspire an episode of our show. Go to notesfromamerica.org, look for the little green button that says record, and leave a message for us right there. That's notesfromamerica.org. Be sure to include your first name and the city you call home. I'll look out for your message. And after a break, more of my conversation with Saidia Hartman. Stay with us. from America. I'm Kai Wright. And this week, we are revisiting a conversation I had in 2021 with cultural historian Saidia Hartman. Saidia describes her work as historical poetics, which sounds right to me. In her book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, she rummages around in the archives of the early 20th century, looking for accounts of the kind of everyday radical lives that rarely make it into history books. Tell me the story of May Enoch and Arthur Harris. May Enoch and Arthur Harris were the kind of young working class Black people who were entering the city. Um, They entered New York City in 1900. And there was a way in which they weren't welcomed by, you know, old Negroes of New York, right? Mm -hmm. Because in all of these cities, I mean, this is also true of Philadelphia, there's a small presence of Black folks, and many of those people are respectable Black folks. They're not identified as a problem in the city, and we're beginning to see these waves of new migrants, and there's a fear of their presence by the white establishment, and the Negro establishment is only slightly less unwelcoming. (laughs) So you have Dismay and Arthur out in the world, and in the summer, Arthur is in the bar having drinks with his friend and May is waiting for him outside and she's calling, Arthur, come on, I'm waiting out here too long. And while she's waiting for him, a police officer who's not wearing a uniform simply grabs her and pulls her up the street, of course, mistaking her for a prostitute, which is how the racialized gays saw Black women who were occupying public space. They were prostitutes. And in the case of Arthur, he responds and he gets in a brawl with this white man who they later find out is a police officer. So this is 1900. They're in the Tenderloin in New York. Can you just say a few words about like the scene in the Tenderloin? The Tenderloin was the vice district of the city, so it extended between 20th and 53rd Streets, 
west of 6th Avenue and running along the waterfront. And what was interesting in terms of the racial organization of the Tenderloin is that the avenues were ethnic. So they were Italian and Irish and Jewish. And then the side streets were black. And um, it was called the Tenderloin because the corruption was so great that the police officers received the biggest payments there. So they would say that it was, you know, the tenderest and juiciest part of Mm. the graph to be taken was from the Tenderloin. Good grief. (laughs) The scene that they would be a part of would be just the, the densely packed life. It was hot, so everyone was in the street. It was two o'clock in the morning, the streets were packed, the tenement is hot, so people are sleeping on fire escapes. People <laughs> are sleeping on the front steps. People are sleeping in the foyers. So it's that public aliveness and the proximity of city life. And there's an excitement about that, right? If Black folks can make a way for themselves anywhere, well, certainly it's got to be New York, right? right? And so it's that nascent sense of possibility that they embody. When this altercation happens, Arthur ends up, Arthur kills the white man in the end. He stabs him and the man dies in the street and it turns out that he's a cop. And so then just sort of describe what happens from there. So basically there is a search for Arthur Harris, but at the funeral, I guess two days later for Thorpe, the police officer, a woman at the wake sees a young black man walking down the street and says, oh, there's a black person, let's kill him. She didn't use the term black person. And and then that incites this mob action that engulfs the city. And basically every Negro is targeted. So mm-hmm. women are pulled off uh, streetcars and beaten. Children are beaten. White neighbors turn on their black neighbors. So violence engulfs the city for for all of those days. And and the riot also becomes a factor then in the migration of Black folks out of the Tenderloin and uptown to Harlem. So coming back to May and Arthur and that fateful night, the part of their story where they're in the bar and they're leaving the bar and when the officer grabs them, it seems like it doesn't occur to them that this is about to be a problem. They're just in a moment of such joy. It doesn't occur to them. And and I think it's also just, you know, the assumption of the equality of Northern space. I mean, Arthur is like, what are you doing with your hands on, you know, my partner? <laughs> and he's ready to defend her and to confront a white man in the street. And I think that that sense of defiance is also something that characterizes the new Negro. And it's something Mm -hmm. that the white mob reacted to. And literally the description is, who are these Negroes moving through the streets with so much swagger and attitude, right? Like they don't know their place. And and that's what the city represents, the possibility of no longer having to be confined to a place. What what really struck me in reading this particular story in the book is how it ends, because... You know, in that era, 
black thinkers and organizers, we're trying to record our own facts about this violence, right? I mean, there's community journalism that's going on. There's public history that's going on. And so the community does, in fact, chronicle this story. And when the story is written, when we write, when black people write this story, May Enoch is entirely absent from it. And I just, it chokes me up to say it. There's a strategy for achieving Negro rights and equality, and that's about the politics of respectability. So if Black people, if we can kind of consistently present our best face, if we demonstrate that we share the same values, that we ascribe to the same moral norms, well, then maybe eventually white folks will recognize that and we will be granted an equal footing. So the likes of May and Arthur (laughs) were outside that framework of respectability. I mean, they were in a marriage that wasn't a legal marriage, right? It was a common law marriage. The police immediately described May as a prostitute. Arthur didn't denounce his violence. I mean, he only says in the context of the court trial, oh, had I known he was an officer, it would have been different. So we produce this record, but even that record has certain kinds of exclusions. And we have Black intellectuals, you know, like Paul Lawrence Dunbar and others who are saying that, you know, these people shouldn't be migrating to the city. They're a problem you know, that there's a new level of conflict that's happening because this type of Black folk is entering the city in too great a number. Perhaps the most famous Black intellectual of the early 20th century was among those who were truly uncomfortable with the life choices of poor Black people in Northern cities. W.E.B. Du Bois was a young man at the time. He was a rising star in academia, and his perspective on Black life was increasingly definitive. At the time, he was studying Black Philadelphia specifically, and he did not like what he saw. And this is the part of his story that doesn't often get told. So, who is Du Bois at this moment? So, Du Bois is a brilliant 28-year-old who's arrived in the Seventh Ward with his new wife. Basically, he's been hired to do a a study of the Black community. And as he writes, he says, there was the notion that, you know, there was a problem and Negroes were the problem. So they invited me to come down and document why this was the case. And Du Bois is just, you know this brilliant bundle of contradictions. I mean, I think we need to think of him in this period as an elitist, as a Victorian. Much of what he sees horrifies him. It is hard for him to look at young girls in the street and not imagine that they're prostitutes. He is in a kind of like a phase of his career where he's still very much an idealist. And he thinks that if I only describe the problem of racism well enough, that that's going to be enough to change it. 
right? And so he thinks that science and that sociology in particular is going to provide the tools to to illuminate the problems of racism and to defeat racism. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a decade later, he's in a he's in a radically different position. I'm I'm particularly curious about the, the, the immorality piece of it, that everything about the people's lives that he's witnessing that may be associated with poverty, may be just associated with a different kind of life than he would live, is seen as immoral, both by him and by white reformers of the time. So why is the immorality piece, what does the moralism come from? The, the moralism comes from this notion that was widely shared among Black thinkers, reformers, and progressive intellectuals that slavery had been utterly damaging and that we were, in essence, kind of like children in the school of moral development because families had been broken under slavery. There was a sense that we had to be trained to live in accordance with those, you know, bourgeois, heteronormative values. And, you know, Du Bois says something in The Philadelphia Negro that for me is so important. He says, you know, the Negro church is an older institution than the Black family. And and that's the heart of the anxiety that we have mm-hmm. a sociality that has a different kind of mapping. And at this moment, I mean, I think that the that the expression of sexual desire outside of marriage is unfathomable to Du Bois because of his concerns about a certain kind yeah. of racial progress. And even as he's, you know, I mean, I I also say because that's also so ingrained in the black middle class. I mean, here he is a newlywed with his wife and they have a very unsatisfying and difficult sexual <laughs> life, right? Precisely because, you know, um, a right. decent girl isn't raised to believe that that's something that she should want. So even as Nina, you know, will yield to sexuality, it's not that she has a longing or a hunger or a desire. So we see him really kind of living those extremes. And so then when he steps into this world of like, where people are openly engaged in pleasure, uh, men and women alike, that is shocking to him. It's shocking. And I mean, there's also this reality of part of the, you know, the absence of black male heads of household was simply due to the very high death rate among black men. So there were so many black widows. And so then those widows would form secondary relationships, often outside the context of legal marriage, or people would describe themselves as married, but not having legal status. Or so for Du Bois, it was a matter of concern and a matter to be corrected and adjusted. One of the things you described that he can't quite take in is the way in which public and private space and intimacy in public and private space operates differently than it does uh, in middle-class society. And you write like with such joy, it seems like you really quite like the way that that space is, is mixed up. Can you describe that a little bit? 
For me, that's that's part of the birth of the modern. It's that encounter and proximity of strangers, right? It's the crossing of all of these boundaries. I mean, another, I remember there's one reformer who says, you know, had I known people were sleeping in the foyer or on rooftops, I would have forbid it. But it never occurred to me that people would do that. Like a decade or so later, it becomes fashionable among the rich to like sleep on their rooftops. But it's basically, you know, it's a way to escape the the heat and the confinement of the tenement. And just to interrupt, I like this part of Saidiya's writing so much I actually asked her to read a passage from her book in which she describes the kind of scene Du Bois would have regularly encountered in Philadelphia's 7th Ward. This is right at the corner of 7th and Lombard. Slick, fresh-mouthed boys, comely, buxom girls, policy runners, 'er ne'er-do-wells, petty gangsters, domestics, longshoremen, and whores. The young and the striving, the old and the dissipated, gathered on the corner of 7th and Lombard. The air was thick with laughter, boast of conquests, lies bigger than the men who told them. Idlers loud talk one another in an orchestrated battle of words. Pimps croon, hey girl, send it on, to each and every woman under 30 who strolled by. Bull daggers undressed the pretty ones with a glance. Passers-by could overhear wishful stories shared about the good things yet to come. Hard-working folks and jaded pleasure-seekers joked and despaired. This is the future we was waiting for? The beautiful anarchy of the corner refused no one. It was the one place where they could quit searching and rest for a while and still believe they were moving and on the way to someplace better than this. Free association was the only rule and promiscuous social life its defining character. All were permitted to stay briefly, catch their breath, resist the pull of roaming, hustling, and searching. Every hour someone remarked, I gotta go, and then lingered. Newcomers refreshed the crowd. Strangers became intimates. The flow of those arriving and departing kept it alive. The same folks were always there, and yet it always looked different. It's just this hustle, bustle. It's a a sensory overload, and that sensory overload can be described by reformers as wretched, and that sensory overload is also dazzling. I'm talking with author and cultural historian Saidiya Hartman. We spoke during Black History Month in 2021 about the entirely new questions we ask if we visit history from the perspective of its dazzling street corners, rather than that of its so-called great men. Coming up, the cultural revolution that erupted in Black neighborhoods at the turn of the 20th century, and the new rules that elites created in response. That's next. 
Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments about what you're listening to, we at the show would love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button a little bit down the page that says start recording. Finally, you can message us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and we are revisiting a conversation I had in 2021 with writer and cultural historian Saidia Hartman. Before the break, she explained why Black intellectuals and white progressives at the turn of the 20th century were so disturbed by the way poor Black people in Northern cities lived and socialized. Their middle-class assumptions blinded them to the cultural revolution that was erupting amid the chaos and the crowding of those urban neighborhoods. Another way I, I like to think about it is as an aesthetic resource when I talk about the air shaft, right? So what those air shafts and buildings mean is that, okay, you're on the fifth floor, but you can hear your neighbors on the third floor arguing or making love or mm-hmm. kind of going through their drama. You know what the person on the second floor is cooking for dinner. And both, um, you know, Duke Ellington and Ethel Waters They talk explicitly about the air shaft as a site of their creative inspiration. Ethel Waters said, you know, I would hear an argument and then I would write the lyrics to a song. Duke Ellington talks about building compositions on that kind of beautiful cacophony of tenement life. And that is, for me, the experiment in living otherwise, right? It's not simply that working class and poor folks fail to meet some bourgeois standard, that there's another set of standards and values that are at work. And reformers were so intent on creating a kind of visual order that they actually misrepresented urban space. So we see this in the photographs of the Seventh Ward in Philadelphia. Even when you have communities, you have like Black folks who are living next door to Russian Jews, who are living down the street from the Italians, the caption of the photo will say, Negro quarter. Even as you see the Russian Jewish boys like (laughs) two houses away sitting on their steps, when they take a picture of that community, they gather all the Negro children and take a photo of them. And then they gather all the Jewish children and take a photo of them. And uh, when I was looking through the archive, there's one photo where there's a Negro girl who's standing on the edge of the frame of the photo of the Jewish children. I was like, oh my God, this is literally the same neighborhood, right? (laughs) (laughs) But they've chosen to like order space in that way. Mm, Trying to impose this new order on what was happening organically there. That is so... Well, you know, there's nothing that's natural about segregation as a way of living. It's an imposition. It's created through 
law in the Southern context, but in places like Philadelphia and New York, it was largely created through philanthropists, reformers, and committees of the rich who thought interracial sociality was a danger. So they utilize all of these extra legal means to prevent it. To understand the extra legal means that Saidia is talking about, we need a short detour. In her book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, she uses a metaphor of a chorus to evoke the voices and perspectives of the people who the elite reformers found just really disturbing and who would be targeted with these extra legal means of enforcing middle-class values. So I asked Saidia to read a section of her book in which she kind of muses on the life of the chorus and to first explain why this metaphor is such a big deal for her. The chorus speaks to the multitude that really shapes the course of our history. And while we often focus on the charismatic male leader or the speaker Mm. at the podium, that multitude, that's what the movement is, right? And that multitude provides the audience for the speaker, animates those ideas, takes it up. So for me, the sense of how the multitude moves uh, was embodied by the figure of the chorus. Dancing and singing fuel the radical hope of living otherwise. And in this way, choreography was just another kind of movement for freedom another opportunity to escape service, another elaboration of the general strike. Joining the chorus encompass much more than the sequence of steps or the arrangement of dances on the stage of a music hall or the floor of a cabaret. Like the flight from the plantation, the escape from slavery, the migration from the South, the rush into the city, or the stroll down Lenox Avenue. Choreography was an art, a practice of moving even when there was nowhere else to go, no place left to run. It was an arrangement of the body to elude capture, an effort to make the uninhabitable livable, to escape the confinement of a four-cornered world a tight, airless room. Tumult, upheaval, flight. It was the articulation of living free, or at the very least, trying to. It was the way to insist, I am unavailable for servitude. I refuse it. Saidia is interested in the ways in which this refusal led young Black women who were living inside these new racial ghettos to start making radically different life choices than those of mainstream society. And she's also interested in the ways that liberal reformers, white and Black alike, came up with new ways to police those life choices, one of which is still with us today, the idea of a status crime. A status crime is something that is, it is only a crime when certain people do it. So it's not against the law to have sex, but if you're underage, then being sexually active can become a status crime, right? So it's a crime depending on 
what your status is. If you are a poor person in Harlem drinking a bottle of wine on the corner, you can be arrested by the police. If you're sitting outside on the patio of a restaurant drinking bottles of champagne, you won't be arrested, right? So that's a way Mm -hmm. in which we think about like, oh, it's the same behavior, drinking wine, but one is a violation because of the conditions and the status of the person who's doing it. So there were a range of these status offenses which directed young women into the reformatory. And because they weren't accused of real crimes, the magistrate judges had lots of flexibility in sentencing, and they were without the norms of due process because technically they hadn't committed crimes, right? They were status offenses. The idea was, oh, if we can actually reform them at this early age, they will avoid the later pitfalls of criminality that await them, you know, seemingly just because they're sexual and desiring subjects in the world. So to illustrate the point, Saidia tells me the story of Harriet Powell. Harriet Powell is a very smart, unrepentant, too loud black girl. And she falls in with a, with a young man, Charlie Hudson, uh, and they fall for each other. Can you just describe their, their couple of days together a little bit? Basically, they meet at a dance hall. They have a sexual encounter and then they decided, oh, let's hook up again. And at this point, you know, Harriet's family is upset that she's, you know, out at the dance hall and carrying on. So they say, oh, you know, our daughter is missing and she's on the dance floor and a police officer comes over to her as she's dancing and she's arrested for being incorrigible. So here she is, she's, you know, Harriet's working, she's out, she stayed out overnight with her lover, and she's on the dance floor, and she's arrested. And so a young woman like Harriet, who was arrested in this way, would be sent to the women's court. So what was the women's court? What was that? So the women's court was a court that was specifically created to, quote-unquote, protect women and to prevent the kind of leering and voyeurism of women being charged with prostitution and all these crimes and in an open court. So it was, you know, founded as a kind of reform of the criminal justice system. So these are like progressive reformers trying to, they, they thought that they were creating something like a boutique sentencing structure. So mm-hmm. there was indeterminate sentencing because ideally the reformatory would be able to gauge when a young girl was ready to return to her life in the world. But what that meant in practice was that everyone received a maximum sentence of three years. Ultimately, these young women um, are criminalized for their for their sexuality. They're criminalized for having intimate lives outside of marriage. And that's what the struggle is about. It's really a struggle about values. And and I think that when we think of like the revolution before Gatsby, so when an educated elite enacts the same forms of practice, well, then it is a, a, a sexual revolution. Then it is a revolution in values, right? When young, working class, Black, and immigrant women are doing the same thing, it's a matter of moral failure and criminality. 
who can be a radical agent of change? It's easy to imagine that educated elites could do that, but is it, are people able to imagine that poor black girls mm -hmm. were as devoted to forging another path for themselves? You write about the story of Billie Holiday, uh, who got arrested for one of these crimes as a young woman and responded to it with a savvy, <laughs> with a savvy take. Can you tell that yeah, story? Yeah, so, so Billie Holiday is arrested because, you know, the police are, you know, targeting Harlem and Black neighborhoods, and they have these things called um, jump warrants, which, you know, I like to point out are exactly like the kind of no-knock warrant that resulted in Breonna Taylor's death, yeah. so that they could actually just enter a house without um, any kind of warrant. So she's arrested, and she lies about her age because she says, oh, if they think I'm an adult, it's only like 60 days or 90 days on Blackwell's Island, as opposed to two or three years at the reformatory. And let me just interrupt the conversation here, because there's a beat in the story that Saidia tells me here that made me love Lady Day even more than I already do. The magistrate who sentenced her was famous because she was the first woman to have that job in New York City. And Billie Holiday thought that was a missed opportunity for herself. And she says, you know, too bad she wasn't a lesbian because um, if she had been, I probably would have gotten like no sentence at all. <laughs> so uh, Holiday is so convinced of her feminine, you know, charms and her ability to seduce. But yeah, Holiday knows exactly how the system works. And even when she's imprisoned on Blackwell's Island, she wins the affection of a lesbian guard who, you know, gives her all these kinds of favors. So um, those who are experienced do that. But for um, Harriet Powell, then it is the beginning of a decade-long entanglement with the police and these correctional facilities, right? Because then if you come out and you're on probation and you have a violation, then you can be sent back. And in that regard, I think it's very much like the quote-unquote school-to-prison pipeline that we are seeing today. And so there's all these ways in which some of the, you know these laws in particular echo in today. But I also wonder about the ways in which these ideas echo into today. So... I just keep hearing, as I read, I kept hearing the phrase at risk that we throw around today. And I wonder how you feel about the way these ideas have carried into to the way we think about blackness. I mean, unfortunately, I think that they have totally carried into the way we think about blackness today and they continue to shape social policy. I mean, we see it under, you know, Republicans with these marriage initiatives for the poor and those who are, who are on welfare. Um, we see it in terms of the totally demonizing discourse around teenage mothers and this seemingly interminable discourse about the crisis of the Black family, in spite of evidence to the contrary. When I spoke with Zydea Hartman in 2021, it was part of a series of conversations in which I was wrestling with my own feelings about Black History Month. And you can go to notesfromamerica.org to find that whole series. It's under the specials tab on the site. But as we are concluding another year of that annual ritual, 
It's worth hearing what Saidia had to say when I asked her about her relationship to Black History Month. You know, I mean, its roots are in an insurgent project. So someone like Carter G. Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro, but the way it's become framed is, you know, who are our representative men and women too? So we can add our cast of characters to that cast of characters of the the exemplary, I think as opposed to really radically challenging the model and the logic of of history itself. And yet at the same time, there there are so many essential facts about the history of racism or the history of Black people that most people do not know. So I would much prefer like a people's history of the U.S., you know, the kind of (laughs) Howard Zimmott, then, you know, each marginalized group gets Gets to have their month. And you can't tell that people's history without talking about Black folks and Indigenous people and the struggle of queer folks or women. But what about you personally, I mean, you know, like, how, how, do, how do you personally relate to Black History Month? Is it something that's meaningful to you? Have you self, do you celebrate it? No, I mean, I think um, I don't feel like, oh, my God, this is my month. I mean, I think it's it's another way we we have a, a pragmatic relationship to it inside the enclosure. What Black History Month means it means that maybe there can be like a uh, a show on Wayward Lives. Maybe it means <laughs> that 20 books can get some attention from mainstream press and some reviews. But it's a kind of enclosure. It's uh, a marketing right. strategy. It's a way of carrying on business as usual by giving us a nod. I mean, for me, Black History Month came into my consciousness with like Soul Train and Afrosheen and the Budweiser you know, poster of the kings and queens of Africa. So it was, you know, like that was all a part of like, you know, my memories of it. But it didn't, as I was going to school, it had no impact on the history curriculum that I was taught. It had no impact on largely the way history is taught in school to my daughter. So it can be a kind of inclusion diversity strategy of containment. But if you would say like under the conditions of white supremacy, do we need a Black History Month? I'm going to say yes. Saidia Hartman is author of Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, intimate histories of riotous Black girls, troublesome women, and queer radicals. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. And of course, talk to us right on our website. Go to notesfromamerica.org, look for the record button, and tell us what's on your mind. Mixing and music by Jared Paul. Reporting, producing, and editing by Karen Froman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us. 